Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us, for the second time, Rich Bordner. Good day to you, sir. Good day, good day to you. Good to see you again. Right back at you. Dave Early, amen. It's been a year, I think. Something like that. I think maybe and more. you uh, are still a teacher, K through 12? Somehow. <laughs> Public school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, public school. Uh, what are you, what I, are you teaching this semester? Oh, so they, uh, for some reason, gave me a few more classes since last time. So last time. Is that legal? Don't don't you have a contract that says uh, you can only have. I'm fine with it. Really? You know, yeah, makes things interesting. It's, I mean, part of it's difficult. I'll, I'll get into the details in a little bit. Part of it's difficult, but. Uh, I don't mind the classes they've given me. Uh, so last time we talked, I taught and still teach honors English for seniors. I teach what's called on, uh, on level English for seniors. So that's like regular English. And then, uh, it's called, they call it world of ideas, which is a philosophy class. And then since then, uh, they gave me Bible lit. So I teach the Bible's literature. No way. Way. And then I teach a, uh, class called uh, intro to tv and radio so that's fun yeah i uh don't know much about tv and radio so i've had to kind of teach myself as i'm teaching the class but it's it's a fun class i really like the kids there and i like the subject matter it's wow. uh, interesting and engaging so yeah they just keep asking me if i want to take this elective i want to teach this this elective and I was like, all right sure i'll do it how many classes are you teaching um five total like different classes. So Oh, like, I see. I see what you're saying. I have two two honors English uh periods, two on level English periods, and then my philosophy class. Uh and then this semester I've got my TV and radio class. And then last semester, instead of TV and radio, I have my Bible lit class. So four, but if you look at the whole year, it's it's five different subject matters. Yeah, five different curriculums. Um how do you approach the Bible class? Well, um, I'm I'm very much restricted in what I can teach by the district. So uh, it's kind of weird. They, they they only let me teach the Old Testament and uh, only certain stories in the Old Testament. So I'm not supposed oh, wow. to go, Yeah, I'm not supposed to go outside. Micromanaging, that, but, huh? Yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's still it's still Bible. And anytime you can teach that, whether it's as uh, you know, word of God, or whether it's as literature in a public school class, uh, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that pitch. I'm gonna Hold on, it. I'm going to pause this for a sec. Okay, and we're back. Sorry about that. So, I have new headphones now. Um, you were saying <laughs> about Bible as literature that you can't teach certain Bible stories. Yeah. Uh... I'm not supposed to teach New Testament. I mean, it's kind of hard to teach the Old Testament without the New Testament. So, you know, still do some of that, but I'm not supposed to. Do they pick and choose what you can teach out of the Old Testament? Yes. Okay. Yes. And based on what? I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, there was just a curriculum that was made at the district level you know, 11 years ago. 
and uh it's kind of weird like they they didn't really um they didn't really go by that curriculum until i started teaching the class so i don't know maybe maybe my reputation preceded me and they're like man this bordner guy we gotta we gotta put a leash on him now, I, they, I don't know are I'm, just, they, I'm just are they clear about what you can't teach or well, they, they just said the rest they, is up to you or what no no they just said that whatever's in this curriculum you can anything outside of it you can't pretty much so of course you start with the sin of homosexuality oh yes no. <laughs> yeah we're gonna start with that any questions so far okay no okay yeah um I mean, but, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's it's still a good opportunity, you know, anytime. Yeah, of course. You can uh, teach the Bible, even if it's sure. as literature. I mean, look, um, whether it's the word of God or, or literature, my approach is in teaching is, is pretty much the same. There's the text. The authority is the text. And our goal is to understand what the text says. Sure and uh apply it to everyday life just like you would any other literature like yeah. some people might balk at that and be like well you're being religious no i'm just reading it and treating it like i would any other piece of literature that's what you do in english class you read it you comprehend it and then you say why does it matter you know so what what how should we then live as a result of what shakespeare has taught us through macbeth and I, I approach the Bible in the same way. And it's just, right. you know, the basic rules of hermeneutics, hermeneutics 101. Except for they're not, except for that, they're not cutting up uh, Macbeth and telling you what part you can teach and what part you can't teach. That is correct. <laughs> with a great wrath, uh, don't read the last chapter because it's got a breast in it. Within that range, you know, of what I'm supposed to teach, there's, there's still, there's still a lot of opportunity. So, that's true you know, they, yeah that's, that's me, probably the best way to handle it yeah when when they asked me if i wanted to teach the class i jumped at it of course yeah there's there's no sense in throwing a fit and i love that you have the positive attitude because that's you're just making the best of what you have and actually that's pretty good if you can mm -hmm. teach any of the bible now do they tell you how to teach it or is that up to you um they I mean, tell there's, you there's what less, you can teach, but do, do they? Okay, they're, the lesson lessons, plans. There's there's okay. a curriculum, but but look, okay, a, a, you know, a teacher has a certain amount of leeway, right, in their class. You know, yeah. there's there's a curriculum lesson that you get from on high, but of course, any teacher, any class, whether it's English history or Bible lit, you're going to react to what you've got situation on the ground. So you can't just be a slave to the lesson and do that and only that, and not get outside of that that's that's absurd no no english teacher worth their salt teaches that way in their own english class so i'm going to approach it with the same philosophy i'm not going to approach this class any different from any sort of english class so if i you know sense that this lesson's not working it's not engaging the kids and it's it's hitting them sideways i'm i'm going to adjust and so i do and that's yeah. like no no administrator should have any sort of problem with that because that's what is done every day in every single class, no right. matter what the subject. Yeah, you know, you've got you as the as a teacher, you've got a certain amount of uh, authority to teach as as you professionally see fit. That doesn't mean that I'm 
you know, getting religious and, you know, doing some sort of sermon and like taking, taking too much liberty with that. It just means that, you know, yes, there is a lesson, but I'm not, I'm not going to like never go outside those bounds. Right. Well, and, and your power of influence extends beyond the lesson too. I mean, you could encourage the students to read the whole thing <laughs> and yeah, think, of, yeah, think I mean, about it and come up with questions in, in, in a certain you can fashion. point them to you can point them to the right. whole thing because the right. whole it's, thing is what what got passed down it's not just part of it right i mean it's it's a unified story sure so what, what translation what translation do you use um i forget what translation it was king james I mean, it, it was, no it wasn't king james it was it was a more modern translation but it was you know it was it was fine you know it wasn't like yeah. a, a bad translation or anything so you know, to your point, um, you know, if if this story in Book of Genesis is connected to, you know, the story of Jesus and the Gospels, to understand the story in Genesis adequately, you kind of have to go there. You know, you have to talk about it again, just like you would any other literature in English class. If this Shakespeare play is if it's connected in some thematic way with this other play that he wrote earlier or later, you, you have to connect the two. If you're going to do your job as an English teacher, if you're going to give them an adequate understanding of what they're reading. So, well, the, the yeah. analogy would be um, not to Shakespeare to two things in Shakespeare. The analogy would be um, with, with the, uh, trying to un understand Shakespeare was something that was written much later. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah, most I mean, people would approach the, the old Testament as clarifying the new Testament um, because of the chronological order, because obviously the old Testament mm -hmm. had to have been comprehensible before the new Testament. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship to in terms of interpretation you know yeah there there is that because of chronology but also the new testament helps you understand and illuminate the old it helps you give right. texture and, and meaning to that old testament story so do you know what that's called nope well i don't want to sound like mr fancy pants over here which i guess is what i'm doing but it's called canon criticism and the there's a guy that actually would be helpful for what you're doing because you could point to him because he's a Yale professor. Well, he's dead now, but uh, his name was uh, Brevard Childs. Brevard Childs. Brevard Childs. He's the, he, and I hope I'm not totally for, yeah, I mean, I got my first master's in biblical interpretation. So canon criticism brevard childs um and and he has uh, some students that that you know like christopher seitz mm -hmm. uh is a guy s-e-i-t-z well these are um you know he 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 uh i mean he i don't think he's the first to articulate it it's not, i'm not saying that but he's he he's a, a guy that developed at a high level of academic literary criticism talk and scholarship at Yale he developed uh, 
you know, some people would say it's an excuse or whatever, a reason to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And he just called it canon criticism because he said uh, that the whole thing is what is passed down to us. And and so if you read it like a whole, the whole Bible, then it can help you understand. The old New Testament can help you understand the, the Old Testament. And he said it in like some fancy pants ways, you know, that you could you could use in your uh, as an excuse to, <laughs> to, to do that. And actually, well, he's really good. He's really good. So he's good be an commentator. Excuse. It wouldn't be an excuse. Yeah. It would be true. You know, there's there's a unified storyline that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And if you're, I I, I agree off, with you. If you're cutting off half of it, sure. You know, you're you're stopping the story before you yeah. even get to the climax. And what sense right. is that? Sure. You know? Yeah, and I I I I totally agree with you. Yeah. But you anyway, know, the, he's a he's a good guy to know. Brevard Childs, he was an Old Testament scholar. Okay, right. that was where he cut his teeth at Yale. So Brevard Childs, he's legit. I mean, he's he's I mean, he, he reads it in the original languages, and and he's legit. He's an old school guy, like back before grade inflation. <laughs> Long time back, but you know the 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 class was. This is my first time teaching it this year. Yeah. And I, I, I did struggle with it. Okay. Um, partly because new class, never taught it before. Yeah. Uh, How many students? Partly, it was like 13, 14, something like that. So a small class, but it, it, partly because it was, it was really difficult to engage the students. And I, I'm not used oh, to Oh yeah. Like with my philosophy class, um, like getting them talking, they, uh, I, I don't know if it's because they're, it's kind of a more secular student clientele and they're more confident that might be the case or what, but with this particular group of students, all of them with one exception, and this one exception was that he was a seeker. So he was kind of adjacent. You know, all and the what, other students, what's his name, what's his name and student ID number. <laughs> <laughs> all the other students were, you know, Christians identified as Christians uh, leaders on like, like campus groups, like evangelical groups on campus came from solid Christian homes. And it was just really difficult to engage them and get them interested. Hmm. You know, the, the conversations, you know, typically petered out really, really quickly, which I'm not used to. I'm, I'm used to a lot more interest and energy and engagement uh, with, with these guys. It was, man, it was, it was hard to get them going sometimes. Makes me I'm very uncomfortable to hear, but it's yeah. very believable. Now, why yeah. do you think that is? You have some theory about this. Yeah. I have a, I have a theory about it, and I wasn't even there. <laughs> well, off the top of my head, two things come to mind. One is that maybe a little familiarity breeds contempt, that sort of thing. Yeah. That there there's, could be that going on. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of an inferiority complex. Hmm. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Okay. Uh, I've noticed a certain pattern in my classes, whether it's philosophy or English or whatever. The secular progressive students tend to be really, really over the top confident in their beliefs. And the, the Christian kids, the more conservative minded kids, they tend to be a lot more timid and, and, and less willing to speak up. I've had some exceptions, but I can I can count them on three or four fingers. 
uh, throughout the last five or six years. Wow. Most kids, you wouldn't know. You you wouldn't know their, their real position because they just don't talk in class. And so could there be something going on like that with these kids? Well, maybe. Uh, there were a couple times when, um, you know, they're all Christian kids. So I, I didn't feel like I was being unprofessional in doing this. I was like, all right, let me, let's deal with some questions you guys have. What questions about the Bible? Like what's, what are some doubts or some right. issues? Or maybe, you know, somebody in class said this about the Bible or about some religious issue or uh, maybe a philosophical, in, anything goes, any question that, that you want to talk about that you don't know how to answer. Somebody said this, what should I say? Those sorts of things. Normally, like when I go to a youth group or something, uh, I have no problem getting kids engaged in that sort of talk. But with this right. group, they were really, really resistant to it. Mm. They were like, we we never talk about this in, in class because it's inappropriate. You shouldn't talk about this in public schools. And so we never, we never have questions. And so I don't have questions. And they said that not as like, like, you know, a bad thing. Like, hey, this is this is kind of a hang up I have. I need to get over this. Yeah, I realized that, you know, this is not good. They said it as like a like a prideful thing. Like they were proud of never talking about spiritual things with, you know, it, 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 at all. And so it was just reserved to like, you know, the, se the secular people were proud. No, did this, I get that wrong? The, the Christian, Christian kids. Okay, Christian sorry. Kids. Yeah. So I was asking the Christian kids, like, hey, you know, what are some challenges that you have gotten to your to your beliefs that you want to talk about? Like, so free reign. You know, we're all right. We're all friends here. Uh, I'm here to help. I'm here to reason. You know, help you reason through these questions and and find some answers. So what do you want to talk about? And there's like nothing because we don't we don't get challenges. We never talk about it. And, and they said that again, like it was it was some sort of um, good thing. Like they were proud of that. And they just didn't want to go there. And so I was like, all right, I guess, I guess that was a dud, you know, it was just, so, it was just a do, really strange vibe, like a, a, a really strange I, resistance I got from them. So do, do you feel like they felt like it was an easy A because they know the Bible or? I mean, maybe, but just... I, I don't think, I don't think that was the reason why the conversations petered out quickly, you know? So they just were not curious. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just intellectual vice on that part. Mm -hmm. Is that fostered in the home? You think? Um, I don't know that with them because I don't want to, you know, judge their home lives without really knowing it, but maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a problem writ large in America in general. Sure. So what are the chances? You know, like, okay, here, here's the way I put this. Hmm. Lucas. Um, the the suburban and, and normal everyday America, the suburban hustle kind of takes hold. You know, think about this. They they spend 40 hours a week in public school where it's totally secular. God is Prime. never brought up. It's never talked about. If Prime. it is, if God is it is brought up, it's kind of like as a as like an emotional hobby that only the emotional weak need. Or a cuss usually, or a cuss word. Yeah, but it's usually never talked about where they spend the most of their time. Right. And then they go from there and what dominates the rest of their time outside of school? Well, it's, it's social media. It's, uh, it's you know, soccer practice. It's, yeah, tic -tac. it's getting into, getting into a good college, you know, building a resume so that they can get, um, you know, get in whatever college they want. It's those sorts of things. 
being chauffeured to band practice back and forth. And so spiritual things or, or fundamental questions, there's just not much room for that in their everyday lives. And so for a lot of students who grow up in Christian homes, their discipleship amounts to church on Sundays, maybe youth group. And then even then, you know, sports and extracurriculars take over to where youth group attendance is probably sporadical. Uh, maybe some prayer at dinner time, uh, but not much more than that. You know, maybe, you know, the, the really dedicated families have like a devotion a couple times a week or something like that. But just in terms of number of hours, um, spiritual things do not take center stage in their thought life very much at all. And so I'm not describing secular kids. I'm describing everybody, even Christian kids who grow up in devout Christian homes. Like a lot of parents kind of, um, offload the discipleship to the church and there's not much that they do in the home. Maybe they think they do, but if you compare it to what they get in secular programming, it's, you know, yeah. really, really small. Right. There's a big asymmetry there. So just the amount of time that they have to think deeply leaves them with anemic uh, intellectual muscles when it comes to the deep questions in life. Now, I'm sure there's exceptions. I'm sure, you know, you're going to get phone calls or emails saying, you know, we do things differently. Uh, great. I'm just talking about the pattern majority uh, in, in American life. That's kind yeah. of standard, you know. Right. And so are these kids in my class, do they fit that standard pattern? I don't know, but maybe, you know, maybe not in some instances, but probably in others. And that leads to just a, you know, an inability to really get deep, you know. Right. That's my theory anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good theory. I think that makes sense. That's sad though. So what how how effective can the classroom be in, in counteracting that? I don't know, man. Um you you've said this before. You kind of just feel like you're just one guy. Yeah. I feel the same way sometimes. Um I wish I, I had this, sometimes I wish I had schizophrenia so there could be more of us. <laughs> I uh, I get this, you know, largely coming from my philosophy class. Um, you know, sometimes, so like my, my goal in the philosophy class, it's not really to talk them out of their beliefs. It's my goal in the philosophy class is just to slow them down, mm. to thaw their dogmatism. Cool. You know, the stereotype is that religious kids are the dogmatic ones. Yeah. But it's really everybody. Secular right. kids are just as dogmatic. Even more so. Yeah. They go with these thought terminating cliches, and that's yeah. all they got. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And so my my goal is to, <laughs> you know, get them to maybe slow down a beat or two, uh, drop the slogans, and no actually, you know, be able to walk through an issue, uh, focusing on what is true, rather than on mm -hmm. you know affirming somebody's feelings or something like that. So yeah, that's my or goal fitting, for fitting in. Yeah, and s most of the time it's it's really hard at least in the moment for me to see progress on that. Yeah. A lot of times students just dig in their heels and they're going to resist. Hmm. Sometimes though, every once in a while I get a win, but then that's drowned out by all of the rest of their programming and influence. That's yeah. overwhelmingly in the other direction. So here's an example. Okay. This is a really good win, but uh, after that, it was drowned out by everything else. So we're talking about 
morality in a philosophy class. And the question mm -hmm. is, is morality objective or subject? Right. So they, they watched a debate. They read a couple articles, pro and con. You know, one of the articles defending relativism. Another article was uh, rejecting it and defending some sort of moral objectivism. And then we had a couple of days of Socratic dialogue. And uh, one of the kids who was like just just died in the war relativist. Morality is subjective. It's all, you know, you know the slogans. At at the end, uh, I kind of he's like, I said, well, why are you why are you relatives? Why do you think there is no real like objective morality? You know, what's what's your argument? He said, well, people people disagree about moral issues. You know, you, one person thinks this and another person thinks that, and that's that's one of the arguments that's been you know advanced in favor of relativism. So I asked him. I said, well, how does how does it even follow? Just because people disagree, how does that mean that nobody's right? I mean, I challenge you to find one area of life where there's 100% agreement. Even in science, there's a flat earth society, my friend. You'll find disagreement on whether the earth is spherical or flat. You'll find plenty of people who disagree. And you'll find some tribe somewhere in some primitive area of the world that still thinks that, you know, if you sail far enough, you're going to you're gonna drop off the edge, right? And he kind of pauses and like, he goes, in the middle of the conversation, he said, I've never thought of that before, man. I've got to rethink what I believe. Hmm. Like right there. So that was a big win, right? That's thawing the dogmatism. That's getting sure. to slow down and chill yeah. out and yep. think for a beat. But he leaves the classroom and everything else that's influencing him is in the relativistic direction and in the you know individualistic direction. And so ever since then, he's like gone relativistic even harder, you know? So sometimes I look at things like that. And I'm like, dang, man, like, what am I doing here? But, you know, you keep plugging away and keep showing up to work day after day and um, trusting that you're not the only one in the process, you know, that, that you're, uh, that there are other people that God can bring into this, this student's life to influencing him in a positive direction. And I, I'm just trust, I just trust that I'm one link in the chain, you know, yeah. So even though I can't see progress a lot of times in terms of thawing that dogmatism, uh, I have to hope that um, my meager efforts are being multiplied by, you know, by the father. Mm -hmm. That's my hope. Anyway. That's my prayer. Well, I've, I've run into those um, silent classrooms in college and it's particularly um, difficult to, emotionally for me it's i i just i can't stand it i i just can't stand that these kids are in college and they have nothing to say mm -hmm. uh but you know then then you have to really for me i have to fall back on being a very good lecturer and that that oftentimes i mean in order to start conversations that wouldn't otherwise exist because um, and that can look differently. It's kind of, you have to be careful about who, who sometimes a, a strong lecture looks differently in different classes. I never use PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, and it does depend on the, the quality of the student too. I mean, if, if they're, if they're just totally lost then a good lecture will not do anything, but, mm -hmm. um, and it does depend on on the kind of dynamics in the class. It depends on kind of if there's a leader in the class or if there's a 
But yeah. if, if there's not, um, what I've, what I've had to rely on is, is just starting to talk, just, mm -hmm. just starting to talk through the issues and, and, uh, until they get their sea legs and they start thinking about it for themselves. And hopefully you can do that. I mean, the best situation is you can reach them, mm -hmm. um, with with a good lecture or a good set of lectures yeah Go, going through the book going through the book and and saying notice this and notice this and i guess it helps too if you have like for me any i'm, I'm saying you I'm just, uh, for me it helps me if i have um quizzes that they might be worried about mm -hmm. and and i or exams or something like that but that's at the college level. I, I I wouldn't know exactly how to handle it at the high school level. I've taught high schoolers, but I yeah, it's you know I I don't have a, a the 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 long experience that you do in the in the high school. Well, one of the things that I've I've learned the hard way in terms of engaging kids in conversation mm -hmm. is if you start out. Like, like a, a whole class conversation where it's you and the whole class in one group. That can be hard for a lot of kids to handle, especially post-COVID. And it's doubly hard for them, intimidating for them, if you just jump into that, like, right away. Hmm. Um, so you most mean like a lecture or you mean a discussion? Discussion. Okay. So I try to vary, vary the venue. So sometimes it's, you know, they're in pairs and talking, sometimes in groups of threes, sometimes in four or five. Um, sometimes it's speed dating style, you know, speed dating where you're, you know, you're in two lines and talk with somebody for three minutes and then you move to the next person in line. So sometimes it's like that. And students are a lot more willing to engage in those smaller group environments because the stakes are lower. So if I want to do a whole class discussion, usually I'll start out the first several minutes with a smaller group discussion and I'll give them some prompts to kind of warm them up to get their social juices flowing. And then we'll go into the, um, the whole class discussion and I'll just call on somebody to start out. You know, I, I got a little wheel that you can find online. You put their names in, you spin the wheel and it kind of randomly picks somebody. And then it's like, all right, you know, what'd you guys talk about in your, in your small group? And then that, that's kind of, that kind of gets it going. So uh, things like that have helped me, but almost every time when I just jump into a whole class discussion cold, like, yeah, it flops. It's, it's, it's hard to get them engaged. So that's, that's my class. Hey, Lucas, for some reason I lost you. Can't hear you. I was on mute. Do you okay. feel like the students uh, read what you tell them to read? Yeah. Uh, um, at least, you know, I can't say my English class, but at least in my philosophy class, because I give them some sort of uh, output assignment that day that they have to turn in for a grade. So, for example, um, right now we're discussing abortion. And 
two days ago, they read Judith Thompson's paper, A Defense of Abortion, or you know, she defends the pro-choice view. And their assignment was to, uh, you know, last 10 minutes of class, however far they got, they had to summarize her argument and then respond to it in two to three sentences, just like a real quick paragraph. And I can tell from that if they read or not. And I give them a grade on that. And then the next day, it was reading a, you know, response to Thompson's argument and then kind of responding to some of the more pro common pro-choice arguments. And so then the assignment was they had to write like at least 10 comments on the text itself, like where they're writing like a one sentence response to what they just read. And so mm -hmm. I can read those annotations and I can tell if they're actually reading or not. Maybe they're not reading with an open mind, but at least they're reading. So um, I, I normally collect it like we do the reading in class. If there's any reading at home, then it's all, you know, all bets are off. Like, <laughs> you know, you might get. 25% of the class that does the reading if it's, if it's at home, but as long as they're in class and they got to do, do something with it that day before they leave, you can get a lot higher percentage of kids read. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing I've learned the hard way. Um, a lot of students struggle with homework. Right. Putting it lightly. So I've tried to, you know, use the, that the 50 minutes that I have them every day, like really pack it with uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of activity. So you, you have them read in class. That's part yep. of it. Okay. Yep. Um, what other topics do you cover in that uh, besides abortion? In the philosophy class? Yeah. Well, I've structured it as a, it's not really like a traditional philosophy class. You know, like in a traditional philosophy class, uh, you're going to read Descartes. You're going to read Kant. You're going to read guys that if, if I, I think that if I assigned those, like treated it like a traditional stereotypical philosophy one-on-one -on -one class, I'd maybe have like two or three kids sign up for it. And so I want to reach the way I put it is, is I want to reach the students who are not interested in philosophy. Mm -hmm. This class is a philosophy class for non-philosophy majors, the students who are not going to go into philosophy in college. So that's background. I structure it as like a controversial issues class. Yeah. So the issues that they're going to be exposed to on TikTok, on, you know, Netflix, on social media, maybe some of these topics and come up. Pinterest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're we're going to talk about those issues. And so the, the questions are timeless, things that we've always been wrestling with and timely, current. So we start out with a week on the philosophy of mind. So is there a soul or is it just. You know, we just atoms all the way down. Then we talk about morality. So what is what is what is a human being? What is morality? Um, then we talk about uh, technology. So specifically social media and screens. How has that shaped our lives? How has that made? It's easy to think about how that's made life easier. But we focus on how has that made life more difficult? Like how has it made relationships more superficial? How has that made dating harder? Hmm. You know, we're all weird now when it comes to dating. Like, you know. You, you can't just like ask somebody out. You got to slide in their DMs. And it's made things super, super weird and crappy when it comes to dating. So we talk about that. Then we talk about, uh, we do a little unit on literature. I have read Brave New World. We talk about all the issues that come out of that novel. And, then and we they, they, act, they, you have them read it in class or are they? Yes. Yeah, we don't read all of it. We don't read the whole book. You just read five oh. or six chapters, like some of the more 
uh, crazy chapters when we talk mm-hmm. about it. Um, then we talk about gender, a lot of issues in gender. Really? Abortion is one of those issues. Hmm. Uh, then we do a unit on uh, philosophy of religion. So arguments for and against God's existence, arguments about what is faith, things like that. And then we end with a unit on race. Wow. So, yeah. Which which race? Uh, the mile or the 400 meter? Or the it's a sprint. I, it's a sprint. Hurdles? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Go back to gender. What? How do you approach that? Um, so there's a lot of questions underneath that one word that you can talk about. Um, so we talk about um, whether disparities are proof of oppression. Mm-hmm. Because that's the narrative. Right? In terms of gender and race, if you know, you've got a company that's like Google, that's 80% men, 20% women. Well, that means Google sexist. And so we, we kind of poke at that a little bit. Is that, is that true? You know, we examine arguments for and against. And again, it's just thawing their dogmatism, trying to get them to slow down and right. really think through the question. If we have a disparity, does that automatically mean that whatever area that disparity pops up in, that's, that's some sort of, oppression in the system they're used to they're used to hearing like they, they all know the arguments for that and so we we look at both sides and we really try to think it through um some of the other issues are um this kind of touches upon what's what's the good life you know what is what is what should we prioritize in, in our lives should we prioritize career or should we prioritize forming a family? Again, they've all had years and years and years of influence telling them that the most important thing is a career. Career, 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 career. You got to get that established. You know, don't even think about settling down until you're 35. Well, there's a downside. To that. There's a yeah. downside to that. Right. A lot of people have bought into that in their 20s. And then especially women. They get mm-hmm. in their mid thirties and they're married to the corporation and they have no marriage prospects. And they're, you know, now in this time, they're suddenly starting to connect to the story arc of their life. They're getting older. They're feeling the weight of biology. And now they kind of wake up. It's like, Oh yeah, I, I do want to have kids, mm-hmm. but it's kind of late in the game. Yeah. So it's harder. And right. plenty of people do land that plane. Plenty of people do you know, find a partner and get married and have kids at, at an older age. But a lot of people don't and they're really, really bitter and they're unhappy. And so I just want to air the question. I'm not trying to prejudice them in one direction or not, but I do want to bring it up. And I do want to um, give them exposure to both sides, not yeah. just once. Right. You know. So we talk about that. Uh, we do talk about, um, you know, pronouns and stuff so i have them read some some people that think uh, you know they hold the, the preferred pronouns view and then some some folks on the other side that say hey wait a minute um slow down how do they how do you find those materials um, are, are they dictated to you by by no, high or okay. no it's not 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 in this class you know i just i just know where to look on the web and try to find good representatives of both sides. I'm not trying to give them 
you know, a Joe Schmo on one side and then a professional on the other. I try to, you know, where, like, where would you find the, the pronoun people? And then where would you find the other side? Well, I on mean, the web, on the web, the, the folks who advance the preferred pronoun view, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It was like national institutes of health. Really? You know, any sort. Yeah. That's the, the, one of the articles that I had them read was from the national institutes of health government. Um, the government. sometimes I'll kind of excerpt quotes from scholars, from gender scholars, like, okay, here's, here's the view. Let's, let's read this. Yeah. Take a, you know, article from slate or the Atlantic, you know, they New York right. times, they, they got okay. those articles all the time. Okay. And where do you uh, find the, the counter to that? Um, no, there's some dissident voices out there that, uh, like a militia in Michigan somewhere. <laughs> no, uh, let's see. So recently, uh, Colin, Colin Wright is a biologist who writes a substack, and he is very skeptical of the standard gender narrative, like the, a woman is anybody who says they're a woman. And he had a symposium on his substack of, you know, various views on pronouns. Some people said, you got to do it because it's kind and it's respectful. Other people said, it's actually kind to not adopt somebody's preferred pronoun and then there were views in between and so i had them read several of those shorter articles let me just talk about it that's interesting. I mean, i'm trying to i'm trying to give i'm trying to give um you know the other side a fighting chance normally right. it's, just, it's just one side and this is kind of taken as obvious and how could any smart sane kind person doubt this it's like well no a lot of a lot of people of good faith do doubt the narrative. And so we're actually going to talk about it. You're going to examine good arguments from both sides, and then you're really going to think about it. You're not just going to be able to um, get away with using these thought terminating slogans that shut people up. We're going to, we're going to think in this conversation. Hmm. So that's, what, that's what we do. That's the goal. Yeah. And how do they, re are they on board with the pronoun thing? Are they, do they just not know what to think? Um, guys, boys are much more likely to be skeptical than girls are. It's really rare to find a girl that is anything but all in on the pronouns view. The guys are a little, sometimes, a little more hesitant to go along with it wholesale, but they're also really, really hesitant to just like full on air their doubts. And you can tell they, you can tell they've got doubts. You can tell that they're, yeah, stuck. Right. they're not quite on board, right? but they're so a little timid about it. Where is this pressure coming from in the classroom then? Are they importing it from outside the classroom? I think so. Why, I mean, would look, they, why would they do that? I don't understand. We're, we're a we're a social species, and we will typically most people will go to great lengths to avoid being socially shamed. Um, life, you, you really never escape the high school lunchroom. This, you know what I mean by that. You know the high school lunchroom. You know how you felt when. You but, why, but why is the lunchroom what is 
what, what's the lunchroom have to do with the pronouns? I'll get there. Okay, okay. So you know how when you walk into the lunchroom in high school, how you felt when you've got your tray and you're looking at the different tables and you know that if you sit at this table, like the popular kids table, like they're going to, they're going to laugh at you and basically boot you out and kick you out. Like, you know, that feeling where you yeah. feel like everybody's looking at you and they're staring at you like, Oh my God, look at that kid. You know, what a nerd. Everybody has that feeling sometime, you know, even if it's not the lunchroom, they, they know what it feels like. And we will go to great lengths to avoid that feeling, to avoid being like, socially standing out in that negative way and this is connected to the, to the pronouns view because currently like when when you express doubt about the standard view and the standard view means uh, a woman is anybody who says they're one and so you need to kind of that's, a, that's the standard view now that's the standard view yes that's the, <laughs> that's the majority view and so, so I could walk in your classroom and say I'm a black lesbian, and so, what would the what would the reaction be? Well, they would they would reject that. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. So uh, I'm I'm very interested to hear why. Yeah. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll we'll get there. Let me let me lay this out. So sure. Yeah. Um. They the, like the standard view is a woman is anybody who identifies as one, and so you need to be kind and compassionate and respectful by adopting the language they want you to adopt. Okay, that's kind of what they think and anybody who doubts that it's kind of like that awkward lunchroom moment where everybody's looking at you right and they're like what you're like you you just what a why you, you should be respectful man this is like basic human decency come on dude and it, it can feel really really intimidating if you're the, the one person who yeah doesn't see it like everybody else they're not worried about the, the, the intimidation, whether that's respectful. Right. I mean, all <laughs> I'm saying is that it's, it's kind of it's, like a half-assed concern for respect. It's a concern for respect for me and my side, but not for you and your side. Right. Well, it's, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of sloganeering going on, but sure. the point is that it's just, it's, it's social conformity. It's, it's a, they're not really thinking logically or reasonably. They're just thinking about, you know, how can I, what do I need to say and what do I need to signal for people to think that I'm a good guy? Right. That is a really strong motivator. C.S. Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring, nails this hmm. as, you know, uh, the main motivator in what people say in conversations. Okay. Now, in terms of whether they take this reasoning all the way, like you were saying, you know, walk in and identify as a six foot five um, black dragon or whatever, as you said. Well, I said black lesbian. Yes. Okay. Uh, the answer is no. They they react really strongly against that. They they don't want to take their reasoning to the logical conclusion because there the stakes are higher. And they're kind. They think they're kind as they do that. How do they uh, maintain? They, they just think like I was like. Why do they think they're still kind when they? Well, okay, I, I brought this up in conversations. Okay, so you guys, you know, gender. You know, woman is anybody who identifies as a woman. So I could identify as a woman, and you would treat me as one. You would call me one. You would use right. words, that, you know, all that stuff. Right. Now, uh, let's talk about Rachel Dolezal. 
So if, if identity is found by looking within and you consult your inner desires and you discover your truth and then you live that out authentically and then society should accommodate you by acknowledging that with its language. If that's, if that's a true and good account of identity, which is what they believe, well, let's think about Rachel Dolezal. Why does the day is long but identifies as black? Thoughts on this? And every time I bring that up, I get a really strong negative reaction. They're like, well, no, that's different because race is biological. And so, I mean, of course, if you read like the gender scholars and the race scholars, they say no. It's race it's is tough racist. because you have to you're doing race at the end and you haven't covered race yet. So the analogy you can't really use that analogy yet because well, gender's first. You cover gender first. Do, all I'm trying to do is see if they're going to take their views to its logical conclusion. Right. We're talking at the end of the day. We're talking about what does it mean to be a human being? What is identity? Fine. Okay. Well, so, let's say that I, I say I'm a lesbian. Okay. Would they have a problem with that? Um. And when I look in the mirror, I see a black lesbian, but I, I am a lesbian. Well, I'm a man who is attracted to women. Well, I think they might have, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head here. They would have a problem conceptualizing that. They would say, well, are, are you are you identifying as a woman? <laughs> Welcome to what it's so like you, to be me. Yeah, if you identify as a woman, then yeah, you could be a lesbian. That's what they would say. Right. But when it, comes, when it sure. comes to race, that's where they draw the line. That's interesting. And their their reasoning is, well, race is biological and gender is not. Gender is, you know, as the saying goes, what's between your ears? It's it's a social construction where race is is not. You know, you can't choose your race. Well, if, I mean, if it's a social construction, then there's no measure by about what it is at any given time. And there's no reason for the peer pressure to go either way. I mean, we could just start a social movement the other way tomorrow. What do you mean? I mean, if it's socially constructed, then it's just a matter of having enough people on your side. Okay. Uh, there's no reason for me to be on any side. <laughs> I could I could start a new movement tomorrow uh, with social pressure to go back. Yeah, because that's what they think that men and women are, right? It was just it was just a it was like it was just social peer pressure, right? Is that what they think? I, I don't know what they, I mean, do they even know what men and women have been for the, for the whole of human history or how do, I, do they have not think, have any historical understanding of this? I think they have a really hard time answering that question with any depth uh, because number one, their definition is circular. Right. Number two, totally. Um, we all recognize there's a difference between having a property and identifying as having that property. Yeah. You know, like a, like a robot can identify as, as a human being and not be one. And somebody right. who is mentally impaired can fail to identify as a human being, but still be one. Sure. And they just, they just never thought about that before because yeah. they're so used to thinking in slogans, but not like not going past that because they, yeah. they're, they're trying to manage their reputation, trying to manage their image. There's their social image. And right now 
the the mm-hmm. view that um, generates those slogans has the social clout. Right. And so a lot of times, because they don't want to, they're terrified of being called a bigot or a racist or a misogynist, or they're terrified of standing out in those ways. They just go along with the slogans and it doesn't, doesn't get any, like, there's no questions, there's mm. no questions. They're not curious. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard for them to answer the, what is a woman right. uh, question with any sort of depth, with any sort of non-circular, non-vague answer. It's either something that's circular, you know, a woman's anybody who identifies as one or they resort to stereotypes. Right. So, you know, let's talk about in a, in a, a woman's bathroom. Somebody like me walks into the woman's bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know that I'm a woman versus somebody that's, you know, posing as one? Like, how can mm-hmm. you tell the true blues from the posers? It's like, well, you you can't go, you can't ask because that's bigotry according to their view. And you can't go by the body. Asking a question, asking a question is bigotry. Yeah. Like the, I mean, most, a lot of the policies, like if you walk up to somebody and it's like, Hey, do you, do you belong here? Are you really a woman? That's, that's, that's doubting. That's uh, expressing skepticism that they are who they say they are. And so, yeah, that's like, you're not supposed to ask. So you can't ask, you can't go by the body. You can't go by like their physical makeup because that likewise is bigotry. So what are you left with? You're left with stereotypes. And so eventually, if you really persist in asking that question and getting some some sort of answer, they're going to result to some sort of stereotypes, which they all reject. They all think that like if we're talking about gender or boys and girls apart from this old pronouns thing, they're going to roundly reject uh, using stereotypes, but it's just here. That's all they got to go on. Right. So yeah, we're trying to, you know, parse these issues out and get them to really think about things. Yeah. That's, that's the key thing. You mean, well, I, I don't know why it would, why would it come up? What would be the concern about the bathroom? What do you mean concern about the bathroom? Well, I mean, <clears throat> why would it be their business to know whether you were a woman in the women's bathroom? Well, I mean, why would that be important to know? Do they think it's important to know? I mean, I, I, I yeah. Okay. They right. still do, they that? still believe that that it's important to know that, but then they don't know how to know it, or they pretend not to know how to know it. Well, I mean, it's it's not a crazy thing to think that there's a possibility that somebody could be in the women's bathroom and not belong there. That's not. Well, I mean, thing. that's the that that's the historic view, <laughs> but I'm trying to see where the historic view ends and the new view begins. I I. I don't understand why we would have women and men bathrooms at all under their view. Right. What's why, why would you segregate the bathroom? 
or the locker room. I mean, that is that is a kind of where their view ends up. I mean, if you want privacy, I understand the privacy issue, but locker rooms are not private already. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just go full on private and just have, you know, the changing area is private. Mm -hmm. And like a individual stall is, you know, there's some measure of privacy. It's not really that private. But I think that the historic reason that we have men and women bathrooms is because it's a half-assed privacy. It's it's like we want privacy on these lines, but not really beyond that. And um, and it's it's that's why I call it like a half-assed privacy. And that's I don't I don't think we've thought about that. I mean, like if if we're going to be private, let's just go ahead and and have the whole thing private. I mean, it would take more room. It would take more ingenuity yeah. with the engineering and but um See, therein lies the rub right i mean the, these these gender new so-called gender neutral bathrooms are the most ridiculous thing i've ever seen in my life because because all it is is a room it's just it's just a private restroom that's all it is you could take the sign off and just say this is where you go to the bathroom yeah I mean, I mean, you don't, it has nothing to do with male and female, never did. And, and, you know, maybe I'm the one that in Starbucks waited for the, you know, there's, there was a men's and res, a women's and I'm talking like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, before they had these crazy gender, gender neutral bathrooms, but they had a men and women. And I would always use the women's because, well, there's nobody else in there. Who cares? You know, I, I have to pee. Yeah. But that's having that writ large. Just period. That's so unfeasible. You know, in some in some instances, yeah, you can have single use facilities, like in a gas station or something like that. Makes right. sense. But well, I, don't, I don't understand why uh, you call it gender neutral. Is my point is that right. you know, it's just it's I, just I a bathroom. That. Yeah, I get that. But yeah. at some point along the way, there's there's going to have to be a public mass restaurant, like in a stadium. You can't have single use facilities in a stadium. It's just totally impractical in a gym like a like a 24-hour fitness or something like that those have to be well it would you know, take more it would take more room and you have to plan ahead for it a lot more room just the i mean the way i mean look at this if you don't know what a stadium bathroom is in the men's room it's like a trough and men go up like horses and pee in it and that's there's no privacy whatsoever. And the assumption is that the kind of people that would go in there that we call men have the biological capacity to pee standing up. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, a man, a man can use the women's restroom and ask any woman who didn't, he didn't clean up the seat because he peed all over the seat. It's a lot harder for a woman to use the men's restroom uh, because just biologically, and I'm talking historically, the definition, right? The men and women. But, I mean, there's a lot of room at the stadium. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, like I brought this up at, at Pepperdine back in 2015. I, I saw the writing on the wall there. I mean, I was like, but look at all this room at Pepperdine. They're, they have these vast lawns. These manicured lawns that nobody uses. I mean, what? There's nobody out there doing anything on these lawns. 
and it's it's you, precious real you estate. Would, you would re replace the lawns with a bathroom. Well, you wouldn't have to replace the whole thing, but my point is, is that you make decisions. There's all these tennis courts, and they just sit empty most of the year, and it's in Malibu. That these are very valuable tennis courts. <laughs> Um, th that lawn is a, an extremely valuable lawn. And, you know, if, if you, if you, if you valued, for example, a library, then you, you know, you, like, if you, you know how libraries throw away books or they give away books then and, and you know how they do that? They, they pick which ones are not getting checked out mm -hmm. over a certain amount of time. So the uh the intellectual vice of the patron of the library the lack of curiosity is what dictates which books get leave the library because allegedly there's no room in the library and my point is is that there's tons of room in the library. <laughs> what are you talking about there's tons of room on this campus it's just that you're making a choice to have grass over there instead of books that's a choice you're making I agree. There's no solutions, only trade-offs. Yeah. And, you know, it. it's not that there's no room. It's that you made a choice not to have these books there. And I, I mean, the reason I bring this up is because I find uh, I, I have to go on eBay to get some of these classic books and I, I get them and I pay you know, for them and they get delivered and they have library stamps on them discarded. Mm -hmm. And these are like, this is like Christian. Um, what was uh, one of the, uh, for for example, there was an Edward John Carnell book called Christian Orthodoxy discarded from a Christian college library. And the book is called Christian Orthodoxy and it's by, one of the titans of uh, 1900s Christian theology. Mm -hmm. He was a president of Fuller Seminary, and they're just discarding that book. It's not, it's not going to be in our library. Uh, you know, I mean, I know they probably have an electronic copy of it or something, which drives me nuts. But <sighs> anyway, I, I know. I mean, so, I mean, if you take your argument against privacy then just you could integrate the the locker room and save room i guess i mean i i, I agree with your supposition that yeah there's extra room that could be used for other purposes namely individual so like solitary let, bathrooms let, but, let's 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 get a little bit more explicit and this is like a family-friendly show but <laughs> show i hate the word show but it's a family friendly podcast and we i have a clean rating and i like to keep it that way but um i think we have to just be a little bit more clear and i think the people at pepperdine were a little bit annoyed by my video from within the men's restroom which is still public on my facebook by the way i, I have a video a live facebook live that i did from the inside of the men's restroom and there was nobody in there at the time I checked, but I wanted to show people the layout and how little privacy there was.
in the men's locker room. Sorry, Pat Pepperdine locker room. And I, and the, and I went into the showers. There's nobody in there, but, but I wanted to show them that the showers have no privacy whatsoever. There's, there's spigots and everybody, every, mm -hmm. all the guys are facing each other as they take the mm -hmm. shower. It's so, so if the goal is to put it crudely to that no one sees anybody else's genitals on the campus to put that put it as crudely as that if that's the goal we don't do that we don't meet that goal right now and we never have and and not even in in high school high school locker rooms don't meet that goal either and these are minors so yeah, um, so uh, I, okay so what are we doing i mean is do we have that goal or do we not have that goal i mean that is i'm like maybe i'm artistic not like a, a savant you know have you i seen don't know rain man? I, i've i've have never you seen rain man <laughs> yes i have and i i you know to your question i, I was like wapner you know i, mean, what, I don't know i've uh, never really thought about that um but it seems my, like that's the worry i mean that's it's the genital issue and and that's the word the people's private parts um but. yes we we don't really go there in this class conversation well uh, you, you can't because yeah. you you can't that's my point is that you the the real conversation you can't have because mm -hmm. first of all even if it is appropriate because it's not in the classroom with with kids and even in college it might be a little tough to have that conversation just because of the way nowadays the way people get really nervous uh, about anything that could possibly be offensive to anybody um but but my point is is that even um, among people that should be having conversations like that i don't see conversations like this and, and uh, there's just things that are just taken for granted and you you have to infer by the structure of a building <laughs> what what the assumptions are because people don't just come out and say it and mm -hmm. we're very uncomfortable and you know we, even the way we refer to these things like we refer to them as restrooms and and bathrooms there you know like there's a bath someone's taking a bath in there or, or like they're just resting no i mean there's we we just have so much you know <laughs> We're so uncomfortable. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, for the record, lest anybody get the wrong idea here. Uh, in, let's get this the, on the record. In the classroom, when we're having a conversation about gender, mm -hmm. uh, our focus is not really on bathrooms at all. Uh, the focus is what what is a woman? Is the idea that a woman is anybody who identifies as a woman true? They listen to and read some arguments to say yes they lead they read to and listen to some arguments to say no that are skeptical of what i've called the standard view and then we talk about it and bathrooms on, on on your campus are there rooms are there any are there any doors that have the word women on them on it yes okay bathrooms do and so and is it that word woman or is it is it girl is it boys uh, and girls? I don't know. <laughs> I have to look. Uh, actually, it's one of those things that I just never really thought to 
It's probably yeah. both actually, because there's a staff. Yeah. Yeah, staff bathroom. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I mean, those, those, so it's important. A lot of people get, I think that's where the rubber hits the road is where, you know. Yeah. Well, I try to, I'm trying to push them to not only think critically about the issue for once rather than use slogans, but also whatever their view is to be consistent about it, to not uh, weasel out and do a Mott and Bailey when uh, the stakes get high. Did, and now there's actual consequences to the review. Do they get what? How do they react with the consistency thing? Do you have to it's hard for argue for that, or do they yes. already value consistency? No, no, they don't. It's 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 one of the main points of the class. Wow. Because um, it's one of the patterns that I've noticed. You know, when we're just kind of talking, and the stakes are low they'll confidently assert those slogans with like over the top confidence, you know, but then when you take that, take their view and you turn the temperature up and you start pushing their hot buttons, they'll, they'll bail real quick. Um, mm. And they won't notice the inconsistency, mm. you know? So, okay. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole, conversation we were having earlier about Rachel Dolezal is one of those issues because their, their view of identity is extremely individualistic. Mm. You know, Hey man, you don't get to decide who I am. That's, that's a choice for me and me alone. I'm going to be myself. And what's, what's behind that? Well, identity is found by looking within. It's a, it's an individualistic subjective quest. That is their view. And they apply that with uh, Stalin-like zeal when it comes to gender. But then as soon as you right. take that, you're like, all right, now let's apply this to a parallel circumstance, race, which gender and race are connected. Okay. You read the scholars, gender is a social construct. So is race. Yes. Skin color is real. You don't choose your skin color, but the social significance that we have invested in that is a social construct. That is the argument they make. So the two are connected. Well, how right? do they know what a social construct is? I talked to him about it. I define it. Oh, okay. All right. So they, so they, I mean, they that's kind of not their together. word. That's, they don't use that word until they you give sometimes. it to them. They yeah, do? They, okay. they do sometimes, but just for, you know, clarity's sake, I try to, I, I define it, you know, but, but they, gotcha. they kind of already know, like coming into this, what a social construct is. Like they, even if they don't know how to articulate it, they, they intuitively grasp what the concept is because, you know, it's like in the air. But anyway, mm -hmm. as, as soon as you apply it to a, a, a parallel circumstance that is rationally connected to gender, they bail because now, you know, the, the stakes are a lot higher. Right. And there's, there's a social stigma attached to Curren going currently. all the way. Yeah, yeah currently. currently to going all the way, you know, and so they'll they'll bail on that. It's just now, like, it's how do they, how do they know, you, how do they know that they're on the right track? Like, are, how do they know they haven't gotten far, gone far enough? Like, like there's a new announcement they missed. Like there's even another gender. Do they, do they have anxiety about that? That they're going to miss an I announcement? I don't get the question. 
<laughs> well, um, <laughs> I guess my question is. So you're talking about like kind of more outre identities and pronouns and stuff like that? They seem to feel like they're on the cutting edge of some kind of new discovery. But I'm wondering where they're getting the information about the discovery. I mean, and how do they know the information is up to date? Well, it's got all um, the information they need right I'm now. Not sure, I'm not sure what you're getting at. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're getting at. But maybe like, tell me if, if I'm understanding you correctly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, another thing that we talk about is, um, well, if, if I, if my pronouns are she, her, and you got to go along with that to be respectful. And it's, you know, insert whatever slogan you want. Like, you know, it's just a small thing. It's just a courtesy to you. It's just being kind, you know, all the things they say. <laughs> if that's the case, if I adopt a she or her pronoun, what about neo pronouns? Like what about like what? More, yeah. What are called neo pronouns. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Like you're more outre kind of like fay fair or I don't know. I'm not making this up. I read a New York Times article recently. It was talking about pronouns like bun and bun self, you know, and we laugh at that, but that sure. like the New York times was, was profiling those pronouns favorably. Like there's a whole list of like, there's just, you just make them up. So if you have to be respectful by adopting my pronouns, when I go by she, her, what about those other neo pronouns? Do you need to also adopt those pronouns if somebody chooses them in order to be respectful? And they really have a hard time with it. Like they, they draw the line there. They're like, no, because that's not a thing. That's not socially acceptable. Uh, it's well, that's not what, really but that's what I'm wondering is how do they know that it's not socially acceptable? Well, give it time. Give it time. See, that's, it, it, that's so it's just an the, impression that they have at the yeah, moment that, about what's acceptable and what's not. And that's what they base their view on. I mean, that's kind of one of the liabilities of the, of the progressive view is something that was acceptable today five minutes from now is going to be declared anathema and um yeah know, but heresy. declared by who is my like my 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 question is is how do they know what the is change. socially acceptable the, the, no, and, yeah, and the whether change, they're behind they, the curve and whether they're already screwed yeah, <laughs> on, see, on there they <laughs> They don't know. No, nobody knows who who makes the decision. I mean, you're right. Right. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just just like the wind. The wind changes, and they kind of notice, and they're like, "All right, yeah. to be to be a a good person." Right. What I've got to say now, and so they shift yeah. that. Sure. Yeah. It's 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 it's, it's social dynamics. Yeah. Okay. All the way down. So it's it's uh, okay. So currently, currently, uh, they're inconsistent when it comes to. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a lot when it comes to a man identifying as a woman, they're like all in on that. Like be respectful. You have to go along, (laughs) but take the same, the very same view of identity. Yeah. Identity is an individual thing to them. Sure. You you look inside, you declare your truth. Somebody who is going with some, you know, more esoteric pronoun, like fay fair, they're doing the very same thing. Why don't the slopes work there? Why do you all of a sudden pull up short and say, well, no. Uh, that's not a thing. It's that's not common. That's that's not socially acceptable. Like nobody, you know, no. That if I if I doubt that if I don't adopt those pronouns, I'm I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just 
you know, I'm just not going to go there with you. They, they pull up short because they know it would be ridiculous. And so they're inconsistent. They, well, they think they know it would be ridiculous. I, I, that's why I'm like wondering is what's the source of authority for what's ridiculous today? Social dynamics. Is it, is, is it something they see on Instagram? It's just a feeling mm-hmm. they get. Okay. Well, and just, and yeah, I mean, um, I, I see what you're saying. I, it's very slippery. It's interesting. Um, you obviously navigate that quite well. I mean, it's not just the word woman that's changed that they they're they think is changed. I mean, I'm just I'm actually wondering, do they even know there's a change that they they are advocating for for the word? I don't even know if they believe that, because like when I when when the marriage definition came up. And I was, you know, I never shied away from that in class ever. And I would have students say, professor, why do you care so much? And I would be like, well, um, do do you think that marriage is, is, is this definition? They would say no. And I would say, well, why do you care? Yeah. That's another. And I care. We both care. It's not an issue of who cares. Right. It's that's another uh, thought terminating slogan. Sure. They don't, they don't want to know. They're not really asking you why you care. They don't really want to know the answer. They're basically saying, and this 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 comes up in my class every semester. There's somebody, multiple people, that stop and turn to the you know, the, the skeptics or the doubters and say, "Why do you care?" That's just a way to say, like a very nice way of saying, "Shut up," and you know you need to get on the bandwagon. It's not really an honest question. So one of the things I do. In the classes i try to try to point that out it's like hey man do you really want to know i always i i, I always uh point out that um the the fact that it's an issue means that it seems like everybody cares about it yeah everybody gets to care well because... i mean but 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 it's it's worth caring about so why would you ask the question of why do you care I mean, I could just ask the same question to you. Why do you care? Why do you care about what? Why do I care? Um, we we all care about it for the same reason. And it's because the definition of the term has real world consequences. Exactly. exactly. That's why we care about the words. <laughs> That's why we're fighting about it. You can't defend women's rights if anybody who wants to be in the category can be in the category. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you have to define the word before you defend the group. You got to know in order to combat poverty, you got to know who's poor. If it's just whoever identifies as poor, now you're going to have Donald Trump. Excuse me. (laughs) I'm broke. I want my benefits. (laughs) Where are my food stamps? You know, and you're going to have to get, you're going to have to give his benefits. If anybody who identifies as poor can be poor. You know, so if you adopt that sort of radically individualistic definition, goodbye to any sort of robust defense right. of women's rights. Yeah, that's why it matters. And everybody, everybody gets to care. Sure. Not just people who identify as transgender. Well, we all use language. Yeah. Yes. We, and, and because it's more you know, basic. I'm, yeah. I'm a father of daughters. 
So I get to care. Thank what gender much. are your daughters? Daughters, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. But my point was that um, there's a lot more going on here. Well, first of all, there's the issue of there's a desire to change the definition. And that if I can get the marriage people to see that, that I've already, that's a huge win right there. Mm -hmm. okay, and they, they eventually usually do admit that that's exactly what they were trying to do. And, um, and I'll, I'll tell them that I never felt like I had a right to do that. And so it's not like I'm trying to, to prevent you from having a right. It's, it's that I feel like I never had that right. And no one has that right to change what's true mm -hmm. about marriage. And I, not, you don't have the power and you don't, and therefore you, you, you just don't have the right, but you also don't have the right to do it the way you're doing it because the, the definition of marriage is not the only thing at issue further back is the manipulation of the word hate. That's actually what was, they were changing that definition mm -hmm. and uh, hate didn't just mean disagreement, but they, it certainly didn't mean fear. And they were using this term phobia as if it was in a totally new way. Uh, and I pointed out that the word phobia, the way you're using it is as, is as if it is something to be morally ashamed about. But that's never the way that phobia has been used. Yeah, um, man. It, it, it's something right. to uh, inspire compassion. If somebody is genuinely afraid of something, that should inspire compassion and empathy from you, not moral condemnation. And it's just an odd way of talking. And so you're, you're twisting phobia, you're twisting hate, and you're abusing these words. And it's also that you can get a definition change in marriage. Mm -hmm. And then, and I knew that there was some other, what's the next word? There's going to be some other word. Because if you, if you're that callous with, with words, then it's going to be man. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be gender. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be woman and, uh, you know, who knows what else. And, and uh, now it's the term respect and kind. I noticed you kept using those terms, respect and kind. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, how do you know what those words mean? And unless you're going by historical practice, how do you know what is really kind and what's respectful? And yeah, what, I mean, whether that's the, even, you know. The more, you know? the more I think and the more I, you know, kind of read and listen in on the, on the conversation about yeah these issues we've been talking about the more i realize that um particularly the progressive side just proceeds with so many language word games yeah and linguistic smuggling right and that's how they that's how they you know get people to a lot of people to to go along and jump on their bandwagon is by yeah manipulating words by taking word like yeah. kindness and investing it with political content sure like on the slide like not telling people what they're doing but just kind of like right you know smuggling it in uh and then and then back. and then censoring dissent yeah and and pretending yeah. like 
oh, you know, you you disagree with these politically laden concepts and these politically laden ideas. Well, that means you're unkind. Shaming to some, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are really intimidated by that. They sure. they don't they don't know how to respond to it. And I think yeah. that really they're vulnerable to really, it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that really messes with people's heads a lot. You know, sure. so the, the more I listen in on on how people talk and the arguments they're making, the more I see that it's just a just just empty uh slogans and words all the way down and it's yeah that's a common theme you've said over and over again is they just don't think past the little yeah it's 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 thought thought terminating cliches yeah it's like bumper sticker ethics yeah people kind of hear the word and the heavy emotive connotation of the word does all the work and kind of like yeah you know oh man kindness that sounds really good they don't it's just so it's really shallow, in other words. Yeah. 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 Wow. I mean, uh, you know, God bless you for that work that you're doing. So you're teaching philosophy and you're in, <laughs> you're teaching Bible. What would, what's your favorite class to teach? It's the philosophy class by far. Because, you know, the, the kind of conversations we have and, um, what, what I've said previously, I think students real to, in order to flourish, yeah. in order to be a, uh, a good citizen, you need to have that dogmatism thought. Mm-hmm. You need to actually sit and, and put down the slogans for a change and consider the arguments of both sides. Mm-hmm. you know and really rationally weigh them and put truth at the center what is true yeah this idea what's the best argument behind it let's analyze the argument for for cogency and then this other idea that sets itself itself up as the opposite what's the ar- best argument for it and let's examine it for cogency and then let's have it out let's think through this yeah. That is uh, that is something that they really, really need. And so on the daily, we get to do that. Wow. That's why is like it that. every day? Does it meet every day? Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, do that's... Point, do you ever point out that, like, uh, on the... And we can move off the pronoun thing here soon, but do you ever point out that there's something else that's new about the pronoun thing? And that is that um it's it's never been and i wrote this on my stuff sub stack so i'm just drawing from what i've conversations i've had with students seem to work at least in college where i i point out that our practice with with the third personal pronoun is uh that we don't uh ask people we don't for input about what we use for the third personal pronoun you have the first personal which is i and me doesn't seem to be any issue with that there's the second personal pronoun which is you plural or singular spelled the same way Uh, that's not really an issue either Um, but if you're not around and i'm talking about you i I go by, or if you are and you're over there, 
you know, I go by, uh, first of all, it's rude to refer to someone in the third person when they're there, when they're right there, because you're talking, you know, <laughs> you, it can be very rude um, unless you're giving be, someone a compliment a to somebody else or something. But, but yeah, you, I, actually, I actually don't think so. I don't think it's it's rude. I think we do this but, all the time. But my point is, is that the the rule is that I, uh, it's a, it's the same thing with using a personal versus impersonal reference. If I'm walking through a space and I, I see a chair, I don't, I don't refer to, I don't address the chair as you. And the reason I don't do that is not because I disrespect the chair. It's because I have a belief that that's not a person. And so therefore, uh, that's not, that doesn't apply unless I'm being humorous or something like that. Like, how did you get over here? You know, put the chair back. Um, and same thing with, with referring in the second person, I, or, or an animal or something like that. I, I make, I, I just go by what I believe it's the speaker, what the speaker believes that's, that's who gets to decide what to say. So if, for example, if I'm talking about, uh, you know, teaching a class and I reference Hitler, I don't say the word he because I'm trying to be respectful to the Nazis. That's never been the rule. That's that is not ever, ever in, entered anybody's mind when they use the word he <laughs> for Julius Caesar or, or Mao Zedong or whatever. It, it's just that that's my belief that that's he appears to be a man. And that's the only reason I use the term he, and I get to decide, decide that it's up, up to me. And I, I make that choice. If he appeared to be a woman, I would use the word she, and it's as simple as that. Yeah, and so it's, are you, that's still in force. I don't, I don't, when did that change you, and how did that change? Are you saying that pronouns are public third, language? They're not third personal pronouns. Third okay, person. So, yeah, third person pronouns. Are you saying that they're they're like communal public words and they're not things that like the individual gets to quote unquote adopt or choose for themselves? Like you're 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 questioning well, you're you questioning could, maybe, the idea that but, but I, I I might not even talk to that person. So in other words, it's just weird to say, here's how you refer to me when I'm not around. And this is respectful. Oh that I, you don't get to tell me how to refer to you when you're not around. I mean, like, it's like if I was driving by in a car, in a yellow car and I park up and I pull up and I say, just so you know, the colors of my car are red and, and uh, like a dark maroon, but that's the colors of my car. And that's how I want you to refer to my car when I'm not around. It just, it would just be weird. Be like, well, no, I, if it appears yellow, I'm going to use the word yellow because that's how it appears to me. I'm not going to change the way I talk. Well, no, I think. And it's not, it's not disrespectful to you. It's just, I'm just being, I'm just using language. I think we use third person pronouns in the presence of the other person all the time. And yeah, that's, that's when. Well, he, he said that already. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's rude. I mean, it sound weird when I say he, when you're right there. Well, no, um take prayer, right? I'm praying for you and I'm praying to the father. Sure. After, you know, saying your name 20 million times in the prayer, it sounds really, really awkward. I'm going to have to go with pronouns. 
<laughs> right? So that's an instance where you're in my presence and I'm using the third person pronoun and it's just fine. And there's situations like that all the time. So I, I don't think it's like when you use the third person pronoun in somebody else's presence, I don't think it's necessarily rude. No, I didn't say that. I said, I, I see what you're saying, but it, it, I said it can be rude. But in any case, it's it has nothing to do with, uh, it's never had anything to do with, um, I think usually when we use the third per personal pronoun, the person's not there. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like Hitler isn't around anymore, so we use the word, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with what they tell us. Yeah, well, so okay. it's not like Hitler said use he and him because that's uh, we want I want you to be respectful of me. Look at I mean uh, no, here, that's not why I use that word. Lucas, he. here's the bottom line. Okay. The bottom line is when it comes I'm, I'm going to say this and we should probably move off this issue and move on to something different. But when it comes to pronouns, <laughs> we're not talking about like meaningless words. We're not talking about how many angels can dance in the head of a pin, like some esoteric philosophical concept. <laughs> this attaches to the fundamental question of all time. And it's this, what is a human being? What is, what is, what is identity? How is identity formed? These questions that we just kind of take for granted, but if you think about them, they're really, really fundamental and really, really momentous. And they, they carry a lot of weight. Yeah. And so, when we talk about pronouns at the end of the day, you got to connect it to that. You got to connect it to identity. How is identity totally. formed? Yeah. Is it just something that is this expressively individualistic thing where I look inside and I, I discover my truth and I got to live that out. Society has to affirm that. Yeah. Is that the true good and beautiful account of identity or should we go with another idea of identity? If you adopt that, expressively individualistic view then there's no reason not to uh, adopt somebody else's pronouns it's all connected well what i'm and saying there's is there's no that... reason to adopt somebody else's like if, if they have some neo pronouns right it, right it's all logically connected yes but i i don't i don't have any pronouns they're not mine well they're, yeah that's, they're that's the what... english languages pronouns well that's they're not what they're I was not mine yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's not like this individually right. chosen thing. It's it's a public language. And so you don't get to you don't get to make that decision for everybody else. That's kind of uh, Camille Paglia is, is pointing this out. She's like, you know, yeah, kind of an arrogant thing. Sure. If you go around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It trying is. to dictate, compel that speech to everybody else. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just really weird if you think about it. So, yeah, well, I make the word like the, the when I was talking about chair, I in the third person, I would say it. And that's not that that's because it appears to me that's what it is. It's not disrespectful. It's I'm just trying to reflect what I what I think. Mm -hmm. And I might be wrong. Maybe the chair is a person. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe maybe God endowed it with personhood. And and uh, but I I just I'm doing the best I can. I don't mean to be disrespectful. Um, and if, if someone appears to be a human being, I wouldn't use the word it, mm -hmm. um, because it's not appropriate. 
it's not appropriate, not because of what was asked of me, but because of what I think is true, what I think the speaker, what I, the speaker thinks is true. And if we, if we distract language from what the speaker thinks is true and we shame that, that's the, that's the issue I'm having. That that's, and I think you have the same, you have the same concern. Mm -hmm. And, and this issue of identity bothers me too. Like the word identity, um, Well, well, that word just means what are, what are you? Yeah, Who the are. properties that you have. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is what is your core essential nature? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a it it is a buzzword, but it stands for a question that is how how do you handle race? How do you handle race on in that class? So, um, a lot of students they when I when I tell them that. We're going to have a unit on race. They kind of react strangely as like, well, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> so it's like, well, we're not going to, it's not going to be, well, on one side, we've got Martin Luther King, but on the other side, we've got, uh, you know, uh, Governor Wallace, you know, the segregationists. And we're going to think, you know, who's, we're, we're, we're really going to ponder Governor Wallace's segregationist views. Like, no, we don't, it's not a unit on race in that respect. So there's, there's certain, ideas although i think about, that would be a valuable thing to do at some point uh no i'm not going to go there so our unit on race i don't know how you understand history if you can't get inside the minds of people and understand okay. from their perspective but i know it's not a history class so yeah yeah um mm -hmm. what we do is i take certain ideas that are pretty hegemonic in public discourse and what i mean by that is dominant and there are certain ideas about race and i put those ideas front and center and then we ask are these ideas true are they helpful are they good and so the ideas are things like is is racism synonymous with disparities you know so if you read imbram kendi who's a pretty popular writer on racial issues right now he says that anytime you see a disparity uh, on racial on, on racial lines. Um, that's caused by racial bias. So that's caused by some sort of systemic racism in the pipeline. So he identifies racism and oppression with the existence of disparities. So okay, so we're going to talk about that. That's an idea that's very very popular. So the focus in education right now is on equity. All right. So we not, we talk not on academic excellence, but on equity. Right. Equity. Uh, sure. equality of outcome okay is that is that idea identifying oppression with disparities is that true so that's one thing we talk about mm -hmm. um another thing we talk about is um you know racism has been redefined lately mm -hmm. so it used to be you know, here, here we go again of, with the words. Attitudes of prejudice, um, kind of thinking that that your racial group or your group is superior, you know, based on some sort of biological why, characteristic. Why did the phobia thing not catch on with the race? I don't understand that. Like if the phobia means hatred, why did why is it not why is there not black phobia or whatever the word would be? That would be anti black. 
Is that a word they use? The phobia mm-hmm. word? I mean, that's in, it's the same concept, different word, but same concept. You know, if, if you're anti-black, you're, you, you have a prejudicial attitude against blacks you, and in favor of your. Do you feel like race. people have a fear that they really are racist and they don't know it? Like the, the kids. And that they're looking for any kind of clue as to whether you're racist or whether they are, and they don't kind of know, they're just kind of swimming in confusion. I think in society in general, not just students. Because um, I, I have such John, a confidence that I'm not, I have no problem referring to a word because I know that that does not make me a racist. I know that because I know what it is. But I feel like so many people are so nervous because yeah. they think that 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 uh, it's very easy to be racist. And I just wonder, well, what in the world do you believe about people? Jeez. Yeah, John McWhorter, uh, he's he's a you know kind of a liberal writer. Yeah, uh, New York sure. Times. And he 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 makes this point all the time. You listen to him, says that everybody is scared out of their wits of being called a racist. It's like yeah we we smell like urine all the time it's the way he puts it because we're just we're just pee, constantly peeing in our pants huh. about this so yeah there's a lot of fear um it's weird and it's really hard to just like with gender it's really hard to honestly have a conversation about this issue so it's really really it's because people because are so nervous they don't want to talk yeah. about it yeah yeah because of that they're worried they're going to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And then that's like crossing the Rubicon. You can't go back. And uh, the the investment with every word is is fraught with such eternal significance that, that you can't have a conversation at all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then really, that's, that's bad. That makes it difficult. Yeah. So How if that make- attitude, if that attitude takes root in any sort of conversation, what you got is not a conversation, but you got just... Right. A ritual uh, virtue signal. Yes. Everybody's trying to like draw attention to themselves. Like, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. You don't. You don't got to be worried about me. I'm, I'm a good. I'm person. not a danger. Yeah, I'm a good person. I'm not a danger to you. Mm-hmm. And so, conversations like that are really, really tedious. Yeah. Because there's just shaming going on. There's not argument or yeah. or thought. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. It's inhuman. Because we're meant to have deeper conversations than just pretend mm-hmm. shaming. So how do you navigate that then with them? Well, a part of it is the, you know, I start out the gate trying to create a culture of honesty mm-hmm. where we can feel free to really air our views and not have to worry about being socially shamed. So the first week of class I start out by setting the stage in that way. It's like, look, this is, you've signed up for a class where everybody, no matter what your convictions are, at some point in time, you are going to be offended. You're going to be angry. That's what you've signed up for. In this class, we are centering the question of what is true. We're not centering these other social dynamics. And so I play a video clip of Van Jones. He's a liberal CNN journalist. 
or commentator, TV anchor. And a number of years ago, he had this brilliant, you know, four or five minute speech where he was talking about like the ridiculousness of safe spaces. He was like, look, um, this, you know, you, you, you have the, the right to be safe from physical harm or from like a, like an aggressive verbal attack and slur, like you are in word, like you, you have the right to be safe from that, but you do not, especially on a college campus or in a philosophy class or whatever, have the right to be safe from ideas that upset you mm-hmm. that, that, um, you know, get you angry, emotional, like this is, this is a, a mental gym. The whole point of the gym is to lift weights. You're not safe from the weights. I can't, and he says, he says, I can't pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. Learn how to deal with difficult conversations. Learn how to deal with ideas that you don't hold. So in this, in this nation, you get to, you know, you get to express your beliefs and other people get to express their beliefs and, and, and you can't bear this, you know? So I play that clip and that just kind of goes a long way. I think that kind of like disabusing them of, of, you know, making these conversations this way that are, you know, stifling. And I think it opens, opens their minds a little bit to, um, conversations that are a little more honest, direct and, and, and raw. Wow. And, uh, just, after that, it's just actually following through on that, you know, so we start out with, we don't, we don't start out with gender. You know, if I started out with that, like the first week, it <laughs> was a minds, right? Yeah. So we kind of slowly build up to that. We, we start out with some issues, some questions that are, you know, controversial, right? but the, the temperature is a little bit lower and right. practice. So philosophy of mind, we start out with that question. Well, hold, hold on, hold that thought. I got to go to the women's room. Hold on a second. Yeah, I just got done uh, getting in, getting out of the little girl's room there. Um, sorry, you were talking about, uh, well, uh, the last thing I have in my notes is Van Jones, and that seems to do the trick, that, that clip that you play, at least well, for now. Yeah, the, the first week I try to set up the, like the appropriate approach and attitude and frame for the course. How long is that clip? This is four or five minutes. It's really short. Yeah. And that's enough for them to like, no, like after that, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of continue and, and I don't want to say enforce that attitude, but yeah. Remind them. Apply. Yeah. Apply that in how you actually teach. So we start out with questions and issues and conversations that are, the, the temp they're still controversial but they're still kind of they're, they're like lower in terms of their heat so the first issue that we talk about first question that we deal with is the mind body problem all right and so our first couple of questions are kind of like that where they're getting practice listening to the arguments of both sides and engaging with them and talking with students who have different views and then just gradually kind of raise the temperature and get to more controversial issues where by like week 11 or 12 
that's when we hit gender. That's when we hit abortion. The the ones that are like really really dicey. Uh, I don't so want to had, start. With, yeah, you've had a culture of respectful argument and engagement up until that. Yeah, point. you you build a culture, and by that time in the semester, everybody like we we know each other, we talk with each other almost every day. We're comfortable with each other. Um, there's a lot of trust built, and there their muscles of dealing with differing viewpoints have been strengthened as well. So by that point in time, they're ready to hit some of the more um, hot button issues. Um, so that's, that's worked so far. You know, I don't, I, I really work to try to give both sides an equitable hearing. Um, and it's a fun class. So that sounds fun. So mind body is uh the metaphysics just traditionally. Do you cover any epistemology? Uh not like its own unit. Right. But kind of well, along that... the way, epistemological issues do come up. Yeah. So um it comes up when we get to morality because what what justify part of what is kind of behind a relativism is like a, a, a naturalist epistemology, like a scientism. Mm -hmm. And so we, we bring that up a little bit when it comes to mind body problem. And then it comes up again, the next unit in morality. Cause it's, it's kind of like, it's like behind the scenes. It's like the man behind the curtain, you know? So you got to bring it up front and you got to say, all right, here's, here's a view that kind of yeah. uh, motivates physicalism. Right. Right. You're just a combination of atoms and you're, there's no soul and no non-physical part to you. So, something that, that that motivates physicalism is this kind of scientism that restricts knowledge to um, only what can be given by the hard sciences. And so, yes, yeah, it, it's not its own unit, but it, it comes up here and there in like different different parts of the course. Yeah. We don't really. Do you, do you expose them to views about or to the 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 vocabulary like epistemology metaphysics uh, again a little bit along the way okay. um just kind of like hey i need to describe these terms real quickly yeah. to you find them because in your reading it comes up so i want you to know what it says in the reading okay. but i don't i try not to belabor uh yeah. you know spend too much time on the terminology because i i want the course to kind of move at a at a quick pace that keeps them engaged so it's not like you have a lecture on those terms and then there's quizzes and they have to know them and yeah, it's on the final too. I, I used, I used to, but I, I jettisoned that to kind of make room for other things. Oh, okay. Now, what kind of assignments do you have? Do you have a midterm, a final? Our, our, our final is a party. Our final is a party, Lucas. Well, why would you not sign up for this class then? I mean, geez. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one How of my selling are yeah, that's sure. one of my selling points is when I when I go to different classes and and you know plug it to students, I say, look, um, number one, it's a controversial issues class, so kind of the hot button issues that you want to talk about, but maybe you don't get to a whole lot, you get to talk about them. And number two, very little homework. That's a selling point. Um, we go from bell to bell pretty intensely in that fifty minutes. But usually after that, there's not a whole lot for you to do at home. And that's the selling point. Because again, I wanna I wanna engage and reach 
your average everyday student. I don't just want to reach the, you know, the, the philosophy nerds like you and me. I, I want, uh, for me, the, the more, the better. And so I kind of have to, you know, um, play their interest a little bit and get, you know, get, get some carrots in front of them. And How many more. students do you need to have for the class to go? About maybe 10 a semester. Okay. And you, you're able to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are you, are you coaching? Not really. Okay. I mean, I, I volunteer a couple of days a week in, in the wrestling room hmm. for your audience. I, I used to be a wrestling coach, but stopped doing that. So I just volunteer. Yeah. I don't do, don't do like a coaching in an official capacity. So are you happy as a teacher? Very. Yeah. Love my job, man. I didn't always used to say that. What school do you teach at? I teach at a school in North Dallas, Texas. So I'll leave it at that. You can probably figure out if you Google me though. Um, the public school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to not say that with the confidence and passion that I do now. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I got out of coaching is because it was just too much. And I was always having to, you know, piss at fires by my feet and deal with drama that was just emotionally draining and very, very frustrating. And so I got out of coaching and yeah. I'm just focusing on teaching right now, being a good instructor in the classroom. And now that I don't have, um, you know, coaching on my shoulders, I can really focus and be good at what I do, I think. And uh, the, the classes that I teach are really interesting too. And I get to use my gifts in a really direct way. And so that factors into it too. So I think without the, I think without the philosophy class, I probably wouldn't be into teaching. I, I would still be passionate about teaching, just not into it as much as I am. Because I mean, think about it, Lucas, how, how many schools actually have a philosophy class? Not many. Um, not many i mean maybe maybe if some private schools do but in terms of public schools that's really really rare wow so uh i just so happen to get to be in a place where where i do that so i get to you know my, my degrees in philosophy a master's yeah. degree in undergrad in philosophy so i get to use it you know i use it in, in my english classes i use it in bible but i use it in tv and radio i use it in teaching but in the philosophy class it's like direct right like that's that's a, that's a straight espresso shot of philosophy so yeah man it's like, it's like my wheelhouse right in my alley so why wouldn't i be passionate about that and that's you know? one fifth of your teaching load yeah okay and and you know the the other classes are, are good too i don't i don't mean to minimize them uh I, the, the students are i i love working with the students that i work with you know they're they're interesting they're engaging yeah they keep me keep me young, keep me uh, interested in going to work each day. Um, yeah, I really they, love working with students. Period. Do you ever struggle with hopelessness in oh, terms of in terms of the institution and and the kids? Yeah, I mean a little bit because, like I was saying earlier, it just kind of sometimes feels like 
the salmon swimming upstream. You yeah. Know? I mean, I know there's there's other uh, teachers of my persuasion in schools, you know, so I'm not saying this to denigrate individual teachers, but the problem isn't really in, in, in public education, at least problem isn't, um, you know, having good people in the classroom. The problem is the system mm-hmm. and the system is set up uh, in, in a really unhealthy way that is not conducive to students flourishing. Um, and I kind of feel sometimes that how can I like to, to really move the needle in a substantive direction writ large would require some really deep systemic change with the way we do education in this country. And I'm just one guy in the classroom. It has absolutely zero power to move that needle. You know, so there's only so much that I can do. And so, yeah, sometimes I do struggle with that. But at the end of the day, I kind of come back to what do I have control over and what don't I have control over? I have control over um, the culture in my classroom. I have control over um, my ability and effort to engage students in things that are worthy of thinking about and engagement. You know, I've got control over those sorts of things. And so I just try to focus on that because if I focus on like these big systemic issues, you know, I'll probably yeah. be a lot more pessimistic. Um, well, because of the nature of this podcast, I do want to uh, press in a little bit and offer some hope here because okay because we are not simply just sitting around doing looking at our belly buttons here we are interested in the systemic issue here and um if if nothing else you can bear witness to the fact that the problem is systemic and Give, shine some light on what the problem is and so when you and the fact that there is a problem that needs to be solved uh you can bear witness to that with some quite a uh quite some quite authority i would say you said it's set up in an unhealthy manner it's not conducive to the students flourishing mm-hmm. um what would need to be changed for it to be more healthy? Well, what would be helpful if it was changed next year or in five years or whatever, if it was possible? And I'm not asking you to to, to, to comment about whether it's possible. I'm just saying if it was possible, if you were in charge or if someone you, you trusted were, were in charge and they had, you were to say, this is what needs to change, mm-hmm. what would you say? It's a really good question. Um, answering that adequately would probably take hours. Mm-hmm. But let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. Okay. 
the the focus or the center of public education is making students college and career ready. And so basically we want like our, if you if you read your average everyday public school mission statement. So most public schools will have some sort of mission statements like this is what this is the type of student we're trying to produce. This is what we're doing in education. Usually it has something to do with that college and career readiness and getting them to be successful in a rapidly changing global environment. Okay. And success just means whatever the student, whatever definition the student thinks it means, whatever it means for the student. That's kind of how it works out. And my response is that that leaves out so much of what it means to be a flourishing human being. Yeah. This is really narrow focus. It's a really pragmatic focus of, of making sure that you are a good, like a good worker, a good employee. And that matters. You know, it's not nothing, but it's just that it's really anemic. And so you know, the fundamental questions of life kind of go unanswered or unthought about mm -hmm. in favor of uh, developing skills that would make you a good employee or a good college student. Now, again, I want to say it's, it's not that we should just jettison that, but it's just that's that's like the focus at the yeah. expense of everything else. And so it's just out of right. balance. Yeah, I think a uh, a classical model um, is a little bit more holistic. Uh, classical model, you know, if you if you Google uh, Dorothy Sayers and you read her essay, "The Lost Tools of Learning," she outlines what is the classical model of education. And I just found what's, what's it called again? Uh, Dorothy Sayers' essay, the, "The Lost Tools of Learning." Okay, probably the one of the best places that defines what classical education is. It's not just a focus on like Greece and Rome or the classics, you know, it's that, but it's so much more. Um, but to kind of give a short answer to the question, I think the classical model is, is much more well-rounded in, in this approach to developing a, a, a um, human being over time. It's um, takes some of the things that a public education is going to not focus on and it's going to you know bring them back into education yeah. so education is about discipling a human being forming um you know what c.s lewis called not just your intellect not just your appetites but your chest your center of moral reasoning you know bringing that vision that c.s lewis that dorothy sayer vision back into education and putting that front and center um I think that's what's needed. Now, I, I don't know if that's possible, given the way our culture works and given the way that the public system is set up. But if you want um, well-rounded citizens that are human in a full sense, you're going to have to bring you know, some sort of classical model and put that front and center in your education. I just don't know if that's, again, I just don't know if that's possible with the way that public education is set up otherwise. I don't, I don't think you can have some sort of classical model because that, 
you know, that, that connects to um, worldview that connects to religion. Uh-huh. And you're, you're not going to be able to, I don't know. I, don't, I just, I don't think it's, we're going to be able to pull that off, but hmm. anyway, that's my thoughts. Okay. All right. So that's a lot you to know, chew another, on. Another thing. Can I riff for a little bit longer? Of course. Um, I think we need to acknowledge that public education is not neutral. See, the thought, the thought is that, well, public education is public, it's the public square. Therefore, it needs to, it's, it should be secular. And secular is equated with being neutral in terms of religion, theology, and worldview. But the way that it works out in actuality, there's nothing could be further from the truth. Public education is secular, and that is not neutral. That is just as particular, that is just as parochial and just as sectarian as, you know, an evangelical private school. It's just there's different ideas about what the good life is that are put front and center in that education. And we need to acknowledge that. But it's not acknowledged. You know, we we kind of run this dog and pony show, this charade that in public education, well, we're neutral. When we're not. We are teaching... Definitely Whether not. implicitly or explicitly, we're teaching students all sorts of ideas yes. about what it means to live a good life, about what the purpose of life is, about what is right and wrong, what is a human being, you know, like all these worldview questions. We're teaching students uh, very particular views and answers on those questions. We are not neutral. Sure. Public schools. Yeah. And it's just that's that's kind of like the whether self-defense with a gun is is moral. Yeah, I mean that's that's the secret that dare not say its name, right? Yeah, nobody can nobody can say that and acknowledge that, but we need to. Wow, that's, that's pretty is. good. That's pretty good. I like that. Where can people get a hold of you? If they want to talk to you about stuff, um, or do you do you want to hold off on that? No, it's fine. Um, I'm open to talk. I I have a a separate kind of ministry that I do on my own time outside of the classroom. Uh, I work with uh, churches and a lot of youth organizations. The organization's name is uh, the Daniel Collaborative because I'm collaborating, collaborating with parents, collaborating with youth workers in the endeavor of making students, you know, in their youth group and in their churches uh, like Daniel. So I think we could use more Daniels in the world. So that's why I've called it the Daniel Collaborative. A uh, number of things I do with that organization, um, mostly centered around helping prepare Christian kids for faithfulness in the, in the long term. You know, one of the problems that we're facing in the church <clears throat> is a lot of our students graduate high school and then they you know, they, they get out in, in the world, whether in college or in military in the work and they walk away. And I don't think that's because of Christianity itself. I don't think it's because the Christian faith has been tried and found wanting. I think it's because we just don't prepare our students very well with uh, how we approach discipleship in the church and in the family. So, you know, I'm trying to just help out and work with the uh, kids and students with that. And then also with parents, you know, I'm a parent myself and this is uh, really close to my heart. 
um, want to work with uh, parents and churches in trying to help build, uh, you know, better models of discipleship mm-hmm. in the home that will hopefully, again, comes back to preparing, preparing kids for being faithful adults in the world. Um, the goal is to, whether I'm working with a, a church or a youth group or, you know, parents or whatever, the goal is to um, help those who are involved in students and kids' lives uh, disciple their kids so that they're faithful long-term. Hmm. And uh, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, my website is uh, danielcollaborative.com. My email is info at danielcollaborative.com. Um, when you get on my website, you'll see there's, you know, a couple particular things that I do. Um, one of them is a, is a role play, which is pretty fun. So I'll go to a, a group. Sometimes that's a group of parents. Sometimes that's a group of adults. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a mix. Sometimes it's kids, sometimes it's college kids, whatever. And I'll actually role play as an atheist or something. Yeah. And we'll have a conversation back and forth where, you know, I'll challenge them. They'll challenge me and we'll have a conversation as if I was an atheist. And then we debrief, uh, kind of go back through the conversations like, all right, what, what stumped you? What questions came up? What, what are some issues? And um, that's my website. And then sometimes that leads into like more trainings. Like it's kind of the, the spearhead of an actual course in apologetics or theology or philosophy. Uh, that's probably the main thing that I do. And then others is uh, I talk to, I try to, I try to talk to parents and uh, youth pastors and sharing stories that um, I've encountered in the classroom to kind of help adults who work with students and who are in kids' lives understand what students face in, in their lives, what they're facing on social media, what they're facing uh, in the classroom in the hope that those stories that I tell both motivate and inform the, the adults future discipleship. So, gotcha. uh, last thing that cool. I do is, um, I have an actual course that's uh, geared for adults, but it can be adapted for students as well. And it's called understanding the times. And so basically it, it takes, you know, it's like a five or six week course, you go through some controversial issues. It's kind of like basically adapting my philosophy class to uh, a church environment. Okay. It's a fun class. It, and that curriculum, did you, did you come up with it? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. So essentially there's a, there's a book called understanding the times it's developed by summit ministries. Uh, same, same title. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I got to yeah. change the title. It's, course it's a, it's a thick book. It's a pretty thick book. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't want to be accused of stealing their title, so maybe I'll change the, the name of the course. <laughs> but but I mean the the premise of it is it's really kind of a fun course. So we'll uh, you know start the class where I'll play some sort of video, like YouTube video, uh, about a like a, a conversation online where this controversial issue came up and usually there's a like a progressive or a secular person in, in the conversation or in the debate. And then we'll just ask like, all right, if you were in that conversation or if somebody says this to you, 
at a restaurant or wherever you're at, at right. your job, how would you respond to this? And so then we use that premise of that question to kind of work through the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really engaging, really fun course. Um, the times that I've taught it, gotten a lot of uh, good responses from it. So it's good stuff. Wow. In my humble yet always correct opinion. Nice little blog here. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your experience and your wisdom. Appreciate you having me, man. It's always fun. Yeah. It's always good to see you. You too, man. Keep uh, fighting the good fight, Lucas. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm kind of like you, Rich. I think um, the systemic issues I'm seeing are so um, profound. Not sure really where to go from here. But all I can do is put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, eat that elephant one bite at a time. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy. Hey, it's been fun. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.